0: So the Christian church has two what we call sacraments. Uh, they are practices, things we do uh, because Jesus commanded us to. Uh, they're called baptism and the Lord's Supper. One is one that's uh, normally done uh, once, and the other is one that's done again and again. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is something we practice monthly in this church. Under most circumstances, if you've been baptized... Uh, you will not be baptized again. There can be exceptions to that. That's a little story. But but as a norm, b- baptism is something you experience once, but the Lord's Supper is something we do again and again. The baptism is the sacrament of the beginning of the Christian life. It, it's, it, it's not the same as the beginning, but it goes with the beginning. Whereas the Lord's Supper is a sign of our life with Christ. It's ongoing. It's something we, do, we don't do at once and we're over with it, but it's, it's our life. Um, baptism is in water, one way or the other. If we baptize a, a baby, we're, we're typically using a very small amount of water. But if we baptize someone who's, who's uh, Andrew's age or older, we typically use a lot more water. Um, and it's relatively comfortable. Derek Popa, you're the one who put that water in, Right? And uh, he makes sure it's pretty comfortable and not too jarring when you step in. And, and, and kind of when we think about the Christian life and our life with God, we look to God for strength and for comfort. We like the, the idea that Jesus is with us um, in, in our lives, as Andrew put it again, at, at school, as Trey talked about in some of the, the grief and the questions in life. We, we like something comfortable and reassuring. And so we, we like water that, that doesn't throw us off. A hot tub might be good. Or just a nice warm shower. Uh, when I was 21 years old in college, I, I um, at, right after the end of the school year, I drove up with some friends to the Twin Cities. We picked up some friends, and then we kept going another seven hours north into, into Canada. And we went fishing for a weekend. And after being there for a couple days and feeling a little scuzzy, um, we were staying on an island uh, in the middle of a large lake, and we, that was our center of action. I decided I wanted to get clean, so I grabbed a bar of soap, and I walked down to the water's edge off this kind of rocky granite island, and I jumped in. Whoa, it was Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> I could have walked on water, and it would not have been a miracle. It was so <laughs> cold. But what I want you to know is that sometimes baptism might be more appropriate in that jarringly cold water, because sometimes the beginning of the Christian life is a jarring reality. And the story we encounter in Acts chapter 9 is an unbelievable story. It's an unexpected story. It is an unusual story. It's a story that's so common in some ways that it's actually given us a cliche. People talk about Damascus Road experiences or Damastic Road conversions. They don't necessarily even mean anything religious or spiritual sometimes. Sometimes it's just a big change, a dramatic event that causes some significant change in your life. But nonetheless, when you really dig into it and consider it, it comes across as one of the most unlikely stories in all human history. But here's the amazing thing. It is also one of the most significant moments in human history. Really. Paul, or the man we meet initially as Saul, is in many ways one of the most significant people to have ever lived. And the impact and the influence of his life is still felt today. I was listening to an interview with a British historian who's uh, focused on antiquity, Roman and Greek culture. And he said... That really, the most significant writer of several thousand years ago, if you think in terms of how his writings continue to impact lives today, thousands of years later, is easily Paul the Apostle. If you think again about the fact that we're here, as we followed the story of the Jesus movement and the Jesus news and the work of the Holy Spirit, slowly but surely it's breaking out of this Jerusalem-centered place and this Jewish-centered experience and it's getting ready to explode onto a larger world, but it hasn't quite happened yet. There's cracks, there's, there's initiatives here and there. God's Spirit is at work. Uh, the, The Jewish authorities in Jerusalem had made things difficult for the Jewish followers of Jesus. Especially the Hellenistic Jewish followers of Jesus. And so they'd all been scattered out there. And so the word was starting to get out. Someone like Philip was on the move. Suddenly he was going places he never was even interested in going to before. Talking with people he didn't really want to talk with. People he would not normally have associated with. He was doing it. And they were hearing and they were responding because they were beginning to understand that Jesus Christ was someone who wasn't for a select group of people, one ethnic group, one nation, one little corner of the world. That's how most peoples of the world had always thought about their gods. They were local gods. They were tribal gods. They were ethnic gods. There are our God. are God for this little territory. And there's another God for another little territory. But Jesus was a sign that the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, was actually the God of the world and the universe. Because he didn't make just a little plot of land next to the Mediterranean Ocean. He created everything there is. And when Jesus, the Jew, came to this world, and when he encountered Jews in in the community he was born in and grew up in, in, in Bethlehem and in Nazareth and around Jerusalem, Jesus, the Jew, wasn't only for Jews. He was for people like you and me. But how was that going to happen and how was that going to get out? God had a plan. I want to talk to you about. Um, I'm, I'm going to encourage you, if you have a Bible or a way to access the Bible, to um, have it open to Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to ask if we put the the first verses of Acts chapter 9, up there again. Just to get the scene, I want you to think about Saul at the beginning of this experience and and Paul at the end. By the way, there's no spiritual significance to the name Saul or Paul. Saul had both names all along. A lot of people in in, in ancient culture had multiple names and they were used in different settings. Let's just say that the Jewish name Saul, like he was named, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, he was named for the very first king of Israel, King Saul. That's probably who young Saul was named for when he was a baby. But the word Saul didn't translate well into Roman culture and Greek culture. It wasn't an attractive name. And it became advantageous for him to make use of that other name because he wasn't any longer living in a small Jewish world. He was about to live in a larger world, a a cosmopolitan world, and that word, that other name was going to serve him better. Nonetheless, it also helps us grip an idea that Saul early on was different than Paul later on. Saul was a brilliant boy. He grew up in the city of Tarsus. He didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He didn't grow up in a Jewish community. He grew up in a Roman city, somewhat further north, uh, in, in part, part of what we would today call Turkey, pretty close to the Mediterranean Sea, but on the northern part of the sea. And there he was raised by a very Jewish couple. They were committed to the Torah. They were Pharisees themselves, and they wanted their boy to grow up to be a Jew, a committed Jew, a passionate Jew. And the young Saul did. They trained him and they taught him at home. But you know what? He lived in that town and he picked up other things too. Among other things, he from early on in his life not only knew Aramaic and Hebrew, but he also knew Greek because it was the language that was spoken all around him all the time. And like a lot of other kids in the world, he's, he was a sponge. He observed, he listened, he saw, and he took it all in. Here's the amazing thing, for all that he took in, it didn't change his heart, his was a Jewish heart. When he was about, probably about a dozen years old, his parents sent him to Jerusalem, and they wanted him to have an even more serious education. He he began to study under Gamaliel, the most significant rabbi of the time, most significant teacher of the time. We've already met him in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel was a very wise man, he was a very respected man, and Saul was his student, And he came to know what we call the Hebrew Bible so well, forwards and backwards. And he loved it, and he was passionate about it, and he loved God, and he was totally committed to him. And he was a man like some of the figures he read about in the Bible, like Phinehas and Elijah, he was a man of zeal. You know what bothered him more than anything? He knew that God had called Israel to be a distinct people, different from the Goyim, different from the Gentiles all around them. They had to be distinct. They had to be different. And so they had rules that guided them on a whole bunch of things. Not because God was so law crazy, but because he wanted to help his people be different. Who wants to be different? Who doesn't want to fit in? Well, guess what? Saul didn't want to fit in. And it bothered him when Jews Jews fit in. When they became too Roman or too Greek or too conformist. And you remember the story from the book of Numbers when uh, there was a a Jewish man, they were not yet in the promised land, took up with a woman who was not part of the community. And that was part of the commitment. And he was bold in his, his interest in sex and his willingness to break the laws and to break the commitments of the covenant community. And he went and found a woman and he took her into his tent in the middle of the day and everybody saw it. And Phineas was so moved by that that he grabbed a spear and he ran into that tent and with one thrust, he killed them both. And that example moved Saul. I don't think he was necessarily a violent person or a murderous person, just For the sake of it, his passion was for the purity of God's people because they needed to be pure, they needed to be holy, they needed to be different so that God would move, so that he would send the Messiah who was going to change things on earth and bring in the kingdom and allow Jerusalem to become its own center, its own place, free of Roman control and free of the influence of these other cultures. And instead of Rome impinging on Israel, suddenly God's kingdom would impinge on everything else. You can imagine that Saul was really upset about these new Christians and about Jesus. But here's the thing. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it's very likely that Saul was in Jerusalem about the time Jesus was. Did they ever meet? We have no evidence that they did. Were they ever in the same place? We have no evidence they ever were, except it's possible. It's possible that Saul saw Jesus. It's possible that he witnessed him. It's possible he heard him teach or speak at some time. It's possible at some moment or other he might have been drawn briefly towards him. But he definitely knew the moment that Jesus was crucified that he was cursed. That he was a nobody. That he was definitely not God's Messiah and he was not the leader for the future. So it bothered him intensely when they started talking about this idea that Jesus was alive and people started following him after he was dead, after he was buried, after the Jewish leaders had appropriately gotten rid of him, that there were people seeking to follow him. And Saul wanted to put a stop to that. The first time we meet him is at the end of Acts 7, beginning of Acts chapter 8, when Stephen is being stoned, a mob is taken over. We're no longer following legal precedent and, and, and legal uh, approach just, it was a moment of justice. It was, it, it was a lynch mob. But Saul was there, not directly involved, and yet almost like he was in charge. They would come, they'd lay their coats in front of him, and then they'd take their stones and drop them on, on Stephen and kill him. And Saul approved of what was going on. And he committed himself to pursuing these Jewish followers of Jesus to snuff them out and to stop this work. And as the, the, the Christians were scattered and they shared the good news like Philip went and he shared with the Ethiopian eunuch, with people in Samaria and people heard and listened and responded, so Saul followed where they went. They went to plant something new, to share good news, to to start new communities and help people follow Jesus and really meet God and really understand what life was all about. But Saul wanted to stop it. He wanted to snuff it out and, if necessary, to end life. Listen to how Luke describes it. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that, if any found, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That was it. He was in Jerusalem, but he wanted to travel to the city of Damascus. You know Damascus, still a city around 1.7 million people today. The capital city of Syria, a tough place in the world. But Damascus has been around for a long time. It had already been around for over a thousand years when Saul started his journey there. It was an important place. And even back then, it had a large Jewish population. And amongst that Jewish population, word was that there were increasingly followers of Jesus in that place. And Saul heard about it. And Saul wanted to do something about it. And so he got permission, he got some support, and he went 150 miles or so, a journey of six or seven days by foot, that's what he was doing he had a mission and he was going to pursue it and he believed god would smile on what he was doing but listen what happens verse three and as he neared damascus on his journey suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him saul saul why do you persecute me who are you lord saul asked I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Already, there's an unbelievable change. We don't know exactly what went on. Time was back when, when people tried to understand this, and they tried to psychoanalyze Saul, tried to understand what was going on inside him that caused him to have some kind of vision or some kind of dream or enter some kind of trance in the middle of the day. But the story we have from Saul, or Paul, is that this was not... A dream of his own creation. This was not a vision that he fell into. It wasn't a trance because of the heat and because of the intensity and because of wrestlings inside of him. But that this was something that was somehow objective in its reality. In fact, based on all the things that Saul or Paul would t- say in years ahead, and he referenced it in small ways throughout his letter, he said, I saw Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after Jesus appeared to all these people, as many as 500 at one time after, after his resurrection, Paul says, he appeared last of all to me as to one untimely born. I don't know exactly what to make of that, but what, but what Paul was saying was, what happened to me when I was on the road to Damascus was this, that Jesus, who was ascended and had ceased to appear in his resurrection body to people, On earth, made a special appearance to me. I don't know exactly what to make of that, except that it wouldn't be inconsistent with what Jesus did in the 40 days after the resurrection. Here's the thing Saul didn't know who this was at first. He was knocked down, he was overwhelmed, there was blinding light, something like the transfiguration of Jesus when he was with Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. He was overwhelmed. He was blinded. And he heard a voice Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? And he must have been confused for a minute. He says, Who are you, Lord? And when he said Lord, he wasn't saying, Who are you, holy God, uh, Messiah, leader of, of my life or of the world? He wasn't saying that. It was more like, Who are you, sir? And the voice came back, I am Jesus. And for the first time, Saul got something. They're right. He is alive. The song we sang a little while ago had a line, something like, uh, 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 we're alive because Jesus is alive. And, and Saul was beginning this step close to that. That something was different because Jesus Christ who had died, was actually alive. Jesus Christ, who was crucified, which meant that he was humiliated, which meant that he was cursed by God, the book of Deuteronomy says, is God's chosen one. And all of this stuff is starting to play out in in Saul's mind. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright suggests that as Saul was riding that day into town or walking that day into town that he was actually meditating on words from the prophet Ezekiel, the beginning of his book, where there is uh, uh, visions of, of wheels within wheels and chariots and, and seraphim and then a figure that he can't describe, so bright and so wondrous, uh, almost like a human being, but not quite beyond that. And and as Saul was thinking about this vision, suddenly he saw the face of Jesus. And he saw that God was revealing himself in the face of Jesus. And that made all the difference objective well we don't know it seems like the guys who were near him who were coming in to work with him in town did not know exactly what the voice said but they saw a light and they saw what happened to Saul and they heard a sound they heard a voice even though they couldn't make out the words the words were directed to Saul and he heard them but everybody else was witness to that to this that something had occurred but they didn't know what to make of it and so they took him and this man who was entering just a few moments before so confidently with such energy and such diligence and such a sense of mission and purpose into Damascus, riding in with authority from the, 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 authority from the authorities in Jerusalem back home, he was coming in to do business. Suddenly he was weak. He wasn't in charge of anything. He wasn't in control of himself. He couldn't walk on his own. He could not see. He entered into Damascus humbled. Let's pick up the story and see what happens next. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, if you go to Damascus today, you can still walk on Straight Street. And as for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Let's pause for a minute. Do you get the scene? Here's a guy minding his own business in Damascus. You know what we know about Ananias? We know he was a Jew. We know that he was highly respected in the Jewish community. We know that he was a devout man and a righteous man, that he was committed to God and committed to following and living out God's law. That mattered to him. And we also know that one way or the other, he had become a follower of Jesus. But he wasn't a leader. He was just an ordinary person, if you will, an ordinary guy. Do I, any ordinary guys here today? Okay. You are Ananias. I mean, it's just, you're, you're just doing your life. You're just doing what you do day by day, what you think God wants you to do, but it's no big deal. But Jesus comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, there's somebody I want you to talk to. I want you to go to a house on Straight Street, house of Judas. There will be someone there. His name is Saul, and he needs your presence. And I have something for you to tell him. And Ananias responds to the Lord. Let me paraphrase those two verses. God, are you kidding? Lord, do you know who he is? Ananias didn't know who he is. That's, I mean, he didn't know him personally. That's how we know. Ananias is actually a guy from Damascus who followed Jesus. Not one of the people pushed out of Jerusalem. So there were starting to be Jewish followers of Jesus who were actually from Damascus, and Ananias was one of them. But Ananias had heard about Saul, and now they were, a word was already there. Maybe reports had come ahead that Saul's on the road. He's getting closer. He's coming. They were afraid. They were concerned. Ananias, poor Ananias, ordinary guy Ananias, just sitting in his house, minding his own business, twiddling his thumbs, doing whatever he's supposed to do. God says, I want you to go talk to Saul. He says, God, are you kidding? But the Lord said to Ananias, verse 15, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias heard that, and he took a deep breath, and he got to figure, he, he thought about it, and he prayed about it, maybe he talked to somebody else about it, I think I would have put word out on the prayer chain, uh, I'm going to see Saul today, <laughs> never wanted to do it before, but God told me to, so I'm, I'm going. And Ananias did it, He went. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And think about what happens here. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord. You know the Lord? Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul's just sitting there. Saul was a dangerous man not long before, but right now he's not dangerous to anybody. He's just sitting there. He's blinded. He doesn't even know what hit him. Life has changed. He jumped into a lake in Canada on Memorial Day weekend, and the water is cold, and he's disoriented. He'd kind of like to get out of the water. He's still in it somehow, and he doesn't know what to make of it. And Ananias comes into the room. And this guy, who just moments before said, God, are you kidding? Walks up to him and places hands on the, on, on the shoulders of a man who, uh, uh, if, if things had been slightly different, might have sought to arrest him or kill him not long before. And did he get the words? He calls him Brother Saul. Ananias was a reluctant witness. And Saul... In his eyes, was a terrorist. But God said, I've chosen him. I want you to talk to him. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you how significant it is to talk with God and listen to God about the lives of human beings close to us, including the lives of human beings whom we cannot imagine ever following Jesus. We may be afraid of them. We may not like them. We may be especially afraid of verbalizing anything at all. But if God's with us, he's with us. And the only way God changes his life is when Jesus actually comes and, and meets someone in a very personal way. But under normal circumstances, that never happens without a human being who knows him, an ordinary guy or an ordinary girl who will step up and talk and share and put a hand on a shoulder and bless and listen and not be afraid and even be willing to treat somebody and call somebody brother or sister before you're sure who they really are. It's like throwing your arms open. It's like saying, Jesus isn't just for me. He's for everybody. God used that. He used that. So what happens? Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. And he got up. And he was baptized. How cool is that? And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with disciples in Damascus. We don't have these words. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? He baffled everybody. And do you know what? He baffled them for 30 more years. What happened that day? Was it just a dream? Was it some undigested food? An upset stomach? Getting a little queasy in the head? not just in the stomach. No. For 30 years, Saul, who we know as Paul, kept on going. Making tents when he needed to make some money because that was his trade, but sharing the news about Jesus and telling other people about him and going from here to here to here to start communities and help them get gathered together. in communities like us, something like us, and then along the way, as he was on the run, he was never sitting, he wasn't, lived in a comfortable place, he didn't own a home, he wasn't worried about his real estate, he wasn't getting ready for retirement, he wasn't doing any of the kind of things we usually do. But somehow he wrote these letters that had been more read, read by more people more times than any other literature from that time in human history. He wrote them on the run. Other people took his dictation. He just left Thessalonica a couple weeks before and he, he ripped off some words and he sent them to them. And we still read those words because they help us understand that the Christian faith isn't good advice and good wisdom, and this is what you should do, but the Christian faith is fundamentally good news. It is that God has entered our world in Jesus Christ, Jesus, like nowhere else, a not powerful man, not a military leader, not a political leader, not an entertainer, not a rich man, Not someone with a lot of power. Not someone who people naturally come to for help or bow before. Jesus, who was an ordinary guy. God came in him, and he came for everyone. And the good news is this. The world is not the same because Jesus came. Saul's life was not the same because he began to understand that Jesus has come and he's come to me and my life is not the same. The world is not the same because Jesus came. And the world is not the same because Jesus came to Paul. Why do we care about human beings? Why do we care about how we treat others? Why do we value women as well as men? Why do we value the poor as much as, as anybody else? Well, we didn't get it from the Greeks and the Romans. And we didn't get it from Darwin. Those are convictions even among those who utterly reject the Christian faith and say Jesus is nobody and Paul dreamed that day. They don't even know that our whole estimation of human beings changed because Jesus came. And he still wants to change lives. And that's why we exist. To see our own lives changed, baptismally changed, change in faith, but also be used to change other people's lives. Paul, what a story. Some people don't like Paul. Guess what? You're wrong. Get to know him. What an amazing man. What an amazing story. What an amazing change. And man did he suffer for Jesus' name. And he never gave it up. He just kept going. May we keep going. May we. I'm going to invite the uh, band to come up. We're going to pray right now. Heavenly Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here. That you would help us engage. That we would be something like Saul. Or make sure we've experienced something like Saul. Uh, some of us have experienced really momentary even somewhat dramatic experiences probably nothing like Saul but, but still clear cut moments when we meet Jesus Andrew could name that story for us this morning and others of us have come in a much quieter way but all of us can know the difference between something that's real and something that's not so real And so help us make sure that Jesus is really alive in us that we've really met the one who's already begun to change the world. And help us to be like Ananias, ordinary guys and ordinary girls who listen to God, could put a hand on a shoulder, can say brother or sister to somebody, and pray with them and bless them and point them to Jesus. Help us. In your name we pray.